All right, y'all, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible now, and so if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians. Last week was Easter, and every Easter we focus in on the resurrection, but we're in the middle of a series right now finishing up the, the end part of 1 Corinthians, and so we've also already been focusing on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, so turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be finishing that chapter up as we finish up over the next few weeks this series in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We've called it, What's Wrong with Church? What's Wrong with Church? And the simplest way to say what's wrong with church is we often forget our first love. We drift from Jesus. Jesus is the point. That's why we're here. We're here to follow Jesus. And the more that we as a community love Jesus more than ourselves and our own desires, the more we'll be a healthy church that pictures Jesus to the world. And so we just confess we're broken. We need Jesus Thank you, Jesus, for being among us. And this week, we're celebrating Jesus' final victory over sin and death, and we're calling the sermon, Jesus Wins. Jesus Wins. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. So the last few verses of this chapter, Jesus Wins. It can be found on page 962 in the Black Bibles that you'll find under there. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to keep that. We've got more in the closet Uh, We can put out more under the chairs. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, page 962, Jesus wins. We're a pretty competitive culture. Most of us have either watched sports or played sports at least, even if you're not a sports fanatic, you're familiar with sports. Um, My kids played some sports growing up. I played sports growing up. was never great at it, but it was just something we did, and it was a fun part of our uh, growing up. I actually got to coach my son's private school football team his last year, Uh, in high school, or his last year playing football in high school. Um, And that year as the head coach, I struggled. I I was not a great coach, you know. I was just one of those people that played sports because it was the thing to do, but I'm not, like, really that smart about it. Um, We were having a tough year because I wasn't that great of a coach. Uh, And we were coming up to the end of the season, and we were facing a really decisive game, and it was really important that we win this game. If we didn't win this game, Uh, We were going to be out of the playoffs. If we won the game, we would be in the playoffs. And we were facing a team that would just run up the score on other teams. They were scoring like crazy. We'd been having trouble with our defense that year. And so I made a radical change at the last minute, the end of the season. We changed our defense up. I was really nervous about it. I was like, I think this is what we got to do. Go into the game. Changed up the defense. Immediately, they start scoring on us. I was like, oh, man, I messed it up. You know, like, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe it. I heard the... The kids muttering on the sidelines, we shouldn't have changed our defense, you know. And um, I was like, oh, I can't believe I blew this. You know, this is so terrible. The other team keeps scoring, keeps scoring, keeps scoring. Finally, we stop them. And then there was this, this kind of breakthrough moment where it felt like the tide was starting to turn. My son was one of our uh, running backs for the team, and he ran the ball over to the right side, far away, couldn't really see him. He must have hit some traffic and bounced back and came this way. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, son, just stick with the plan. You know, like run the way you're supposed to run. He bounces back, starts running this way. Like, oh, here comes someone to tackle him. Oh, he slips by that guy. Here comes someone else. Oh, he slips by that guy. The third guy that comes to tackle him is like right in front of me now, coming to this side of the field where all of us coaches are standing. Uh, And this guy comes up to tackle him, and he just like slams him to the ground. It was like one of the most glorious plays I'd ever seen. It was like right there. You know, like I had front row seat. He just smashed him. My son just like smashed him in the ground. Um, Raised my son not to be violent, but this was an appropriate place for that, right? Everybody had pads. Everybody was okay. Just smashes him into ground. And I was just like, whoo, like just started screaming. I'm not a very expressive person, right? 
Uh, but I just screamed my brains out because it was this moment where you could just feel the tide had turned, you know? Like it was this decisive moment where it felt like, I think victory is going to be ours. Like I think we could actually win this, right? And in the end, we did actually win the game. Um, but it was that turning point. And what the New Testament tells us is that there is an ultimate turning point in the history of the world, much bigger than some silly high school football game, much bigger than anything else we've ever been involved in. We are at war with sin and death, and the decisive play, the turning point where we are all to just scream our brains out is when we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we look at that turning point, we say, we're going to win the game. Like, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it. We're going to survive all this pain, all this suffering, the depression and the difficulties and the horrible things that we're going through. Like, that's not the end of the story. In the end, the scoreboard is going to read that Jesus wins. And if we trust in Jesus, we win with Jesus. He's our champion. We get to be on his team. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that Jesus has won the decisive victory. And so we're looking back at that turning point in the game saying, man, that's, that's where the momentum shifted. Right there. That's the moment. Now we're still fighting, right? We're still scrapping. We're still trying to take ground. The game's not over yet, but we can look back at that decisive moment and say, that's where it all shifted. That's where we should start screaming and celebrating. And really, frankly, every week when we come to worship Jesus together as a congregation, that's what we're doing. We're saying, woohoo, he, he won, right? Jesus has won. I have hope in him, even though we're still fighting sin day by day. We're still in the thick of it. It's still a painful world. Jesus says in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That word is victorious. Jesus is victorious. Jesus wins. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. There's a mashup of quotes here. Uh, Paul is referring to stuff in Hosea, stuff in Isaiah. He's tying all that together, these prophecies, to what Jesus has actually accomplished. Starting in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, that means, look, Pay attention. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying as it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he ends with, All right, brothers, keep going. Jesus wins. He's victorious. He's defeated death. And so, what does that mean for us? Keep going. Don't give up. Don't give up. Jesus wins. 
Let me pray and ask that Jesus' spirit would come and meet us here and help us to hear this deep down, to believe this, to trust him. Um, Let's pray together. God, we recognize that you have won the decisive battle at the cross, at your resurrection. You took all of our sins upon yourself. You rose from the dead. You've defeated death once and for all. And yet we still struggle. We're still waiting for your return. So God, will you meet us here and help us to see that these things are true? Will you empower us that we, by your Spirit, would begin to exhibit the the fruits of the Spirit, that we would begin to live lives of, of faithfulness and kindness and love and joy because you have indeed defeated sin and death once and for all. Help us to trust you. Help us to look forward to your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And because... The whole story is not finished yet. We can doubt that. We can forget that. So we have to remind one another. We have to encourage one another with these things. This is the way it's talked about in one of the major cross-references in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, remind each other of these things. Jesus is coming back. It's going to be okay. Keep going, right? That's our job as community, as brothers and sisters in Christ to say, it's going to be all right. Jesus is coming. He's going to come back. Jesus has won. Jesus has defeated sin and death once and for all. So Jesus wins, don't give up. Jesus wins, don't give up. That's, that's the big idea. If you don't take anything else away today, that's it. Jesus wins, so don't give up. Keep going, keep walking by faith. Three points. Jesus wins over our weakness, so don't give up. Second point is Jesus wins over death, so don't give up. Third point is Jesus wins over sin, so don't give up. So Jesus wins over our weakness, over death, and over sin. So don't give up. The first point in verses 50 through 53, Jesus wins over our weakness, our weakness. We are fragile. We're mortal. Uh, You probably can't see from the back of the room, but I have a cut on my cheek on each side. I have little scratches and cuts all over my body. I was trimming trees a couple of days ago, and tree branches kept scratching me up. You know what? When a tree hits my skin, the tree often wins, okay? I'm fragile, I'm mortal, I'm perishable. Our flesh is not made to last forever in this current form, but there's this new bodies that we're going to get, this redeemed body, this resurrected body, where we will indeed conquer sin and death, and every tear will be wiped away. Jesus wins over our weakness. He says it this way in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Uh, flesh and blood is a reference throughout the scriptures to the strength of man, to mortality, to what we can do on our own. So the way we often talk about this uh, today is, is pride, right? Like, I can do it. I don't need God. I, I, I've got this, right? And so there's sometimes confusion because of the Greek worldview that's part of how we see the world, just a part of human history. We often think that flesh is bad, and spirit is good, but really the issue is our flesh is bad because we've given ourselves over to sin. But Jesus is going to redeem our flesh, and it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to have new bodies, and we're going to have some kind of flesh that is spirit-animated and spirit-driven and spirit-obedient. And Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So when he says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the, the current state we're in. Like, By relying on me, relying on my own strength, relying on my cut-up skin, right? Like, I can't can't do this on my own. I I need a champion who can save me. 
He says in verse 51, behold, pay attention, look, I tell you a mystery. I have to define this in ancient religions, mystery always meant it's a secret and if you do enough good things and learn enough secret handshakes, then you can know the secret. So it was kind of like keeping out outsiders. They were called mystery cults, lots of clubs and mystery religions in the first century. There were just tons of them. Christianity turns mystery on its head. It says the mystery is, is opened up. The mystery is revealed for you. You're invited in. There's no inner ring if you trust Jesus by faith. You're a part of the inner ring. It's not like this inner circle, this clique, this club where you're not allowed in. No, we're all outside of it by sin, but because Jesus loves us, he came and took our sin upon himself, so now he's invited us in. So mystery is the secret thing that's now been revealed in Jesus. He's saying, pay attention, behold, look, I declare to you this mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, sleep is used of death by Christians in the New Testament as a euphemism to help us to understand that it's temporary. So, do people actually die when they die? Yeah, people actually die when they die. This is like a a nice way of saying it to say, hey, but that's not the end of the story, right? It's just temporary. If you know Jesus, he's going to wake you up big time. He's going to bring you back to life. There will be a resurrection. So Paul's saying it this way. Hey, some of us are going to see Jesus come back, right? He might come back today. He might come back in 100 years. We don't know when he's going to come back, but some followers of Jesus are going to see him when he comes back. And so those that are dead will be resurrected, and those of us that are alive will be resurrected. We'll all be changed together. We'll all be given new bodies. Some of us will go through death. That's the normal route. Others will just, boom, see him, and we're resurrected immediately. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. What does that mean? You don't, you don't wear out anymore, Right? <laughs> No more, no more cuts and scrapes in the same sense we know them now. Somehow we'll be physical, but without sin, we shall be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Um, we said this a few weeks ago. We look forward to better bodies. We look forward to not having bodies that are broken anymore, that are racked by sin and heart disease and cancer and COVID and whatever else. We're, we're going to be beyond that, and that is a... That's an incredible hope. Again, it's hard for us to fully understand. We don't, know, we don't know all the details, right? But we know that this is our hope of being set free. And so I want to ask you and ask myself, what, what is our hope right now? What is our hope? We have fantastic medical breakthroughs that, that, we, that we enjoy in our current day and age. I, I grabbed a picture of someone taking some pills. Um, and I just grabbed this picture because I just wanted to think about like, you know, pills are a blessing, Right? Uh, we, can, we can have medicine that can help us. Uh, you might be relying on something else, right? You might be relying on health and fitness. I said this a few weeks ago when we were talking about resurrected bodies. My wife and I try to stay in good shape. You know, we try to exercise. That's something you can rely on to, to be strong and to be healthy. Um, you might be relying on, on money, right? The, the question is, where do you see your health? What, what do you see as the thing that's going to help you overcome your weakness? Because we're all weak. We all recognize we're all mortal, we're all perishable, but in the end, we're going to wear out, right? So there are things we can do to improve things, right? You can take medicine, that's better, but eventually you're going to die. We can, we can exercise and live a healthier, stronger life. That's a good thing, but eventually we're going to die. 
what the, the message is here is that there's an ultimate hope, right? These other things can be helpful, but in the end, there's one thing that will fix us, and that's Jesus. Jesus wins over our weakness. We're actually looking forward to him returning. I just have to recognize we live in kind of a day and age where I think there's a backlash against uh, this thing where there's been, you know, books and movies. I don't know if you've ever heard of Left Behind. There's been a lot of, you know, stuff written about imagining what the end of the world is going to look like. And so I think what happens is that can sometimes seem silly or, you know, maybe it's a badly made movie and so we can make fun of that. Or theologically, you may not agree with all the details of how they order the, the events in the end times. But I'm afraid we're swinging on this pendulum where because maybe a previous generation was obsessed with the return of Christ... We swing the other way and we say, so we don't, we don't want to think about that. Those, those people obsessed over that, and we don't want to be those kind of people that obsess over things like that, right? We're too cool for that. The Bible actually says we should, to a certain extent, obsess over the return of Christ. Now, we want to be careful because Christians disagree over the order of events, right? So what I would argue is, is we want to not obsess over our view of the return of Christ, but we do want to obsess over Jesus coming back is my hope. Like seeing Jesus is the number one thing we should be looking forward to. Jesus wins over our weakness. And we're either going to be dead for a little while and then see him, or we're going to see him coming back, you know, whenever he comes back and we're still alive. But seeing him is our hope. And we've got to maintain that as a very important priority. Um, One of the key words that is uh, thrown around a lot of times in culture is rapture. How many of you have heard the word rapture? So it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, when Jesus comes back, we'll be caught up in the clouds to meet him. This language of being on the clouds is language that's used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the kind of dominance of, it was used of other gods, but our scripture says, no, this is, our God is the God who comes on the clouds. He's the one that's like the victorious one who rides on the clouds. So this was God language used of other gods in other cultures and used of our God as well. And it was just a a device of saying kind of like he's from heaven, you know, he dominates, he comes from above. He's this uh, conquering king. So Jesus said it about himself when he was on trial with the Jewish leaders, he's like, you're going to see me coming on the clouds. And they're like, stone him. He's calling himself God, right? So it's this language that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's used uh, by Jesus in Matthew 26. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where we're told in Daniel chapter 7 that there was one like a son of man who came on the clouds, who was one who was both human and divine. The Jews never knew what to do with that. It never made sense until Jesus arrived on the scene. Only Jesus can fulfill this hope of a human being who comes on the clouds as God. And that's our hope. Now, the, the physicality of that, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to work, right? Like, we, we get down in the details, we start making movies about, you know, our ship captain's going to disappear from, you know, the airplane. It's, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work out that way. I'm, I'm a little suspicious that that's not exactly how it's going to go. But my hope is seeing Jesus. That's my hope. So again, we have to be careful not to swing to the extreme of, because some people have said too much about this and said more than we know, let's not talk about it. No, let's, let's talk about it. Jesus is our hope. Here's a great parallel in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And verse 11, it talks about how it's the grace of Jesus 
his kindness to us that actually changes us. That's what trains us to say no to sin. We don't say no to sin out of our own strength. We say no to sin because Jesus is gracious and he's come after us and he loves us. And then Paul turns in this little section and says, not only does this grace teach us to renounce our worldly passions, to say no to sin, but our blessed hope is seeing Jesus come back for us. It's the blessed hope. That's what we're looking forward to, seeing Jesus face to face. So I just want to encourage you that that should be our greatest hope. And I want to make you feel guilty because I've, I've talked about this with people sometimes. You know, like, sometimes you're like, man, Jesus, I can't wait to see you, but let me finish this project, right? Or let me see my grandchild grow up first and then come back, right? Like, it's human. We're weak. We have, we have stuff that we look forward to seeing finish. That's cool. You know, Jesus can handle that. You can be honest with him about that. But I just want to press you towards my, my real hope, Jesus, is seeing you. That's going to make everything else okay. Jesus, come quickly. I want to see you. Jesus is the only thing that can actually overcome our human weakness. When we think about end time stuff, I like to remind you again and again that the scripture is more clear about what we are to do than it is about the order of events, okay? The scripture is more clear about what am I supposed to do, Jesus, while I'm waiting for you to return? He says it very clearly. He lays it out in Matthew 24 and 25. He gives, uh, here's the end of the world, this is what it's going to look like, and then he says, this is what I want you to do. He gives three parables. Uh, the three parables basically say that we should uh, serve others like a good servant instead of taking advantage of others, thinking, ah, Jesus is never coming back, so I got to take advantage of others to take care of myself. No, serve others because Jesus is coming back. The second one is we should be ready to adore Jesus. It's the parable of the wedding virgins. It's very confusing culturally for us, but it's basically... Have your supplies ready to celebrate the party, and the ultimate party of all time is the return of Jesus. Be ready to celebrate his return. Adore him. And then the final one is invest your talents. Parable of the talents. The people that trust the master spend their lives for the master. The people that don't trust the master bury their talent and say, I've got to hide this because the master's unfair. No, we should trust the master. He's coming back. He is good. He is gracious. We're looking forward to the blessed hope of seeing him face to face. We're going to be changed in a moment. We'll be transformed. He is our hope. He wins over our weakness. The next point we're going to see is that Jesus wins over death. Jesus wins over death, so don't give up. Keep going. Verses 54 and 55, this is a mashup of Hosea and Isaiah. So Hosea 13 and Isaiah 25, Paul's mixing these prophecies together and saying both of these are fulfilled in Jesus as he defeats death. It's what we look forward to. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is Paul's translation of Isaiah 25. And Hosea 13. I encourage you to go back and read those on your own time. I'll, I'll read a little short quote from them, but read the whole thing to get context that, you know, you get extra richness. When Paul when quotes an Old Testament passage, he's expecting that you're going to go read the rest of it, okay? Um, Hosea 13 says, I shall ransom them from the power of death. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your, strength, your sting? Isaiah 25 says this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of 
rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. So he's giving us a picture of the ultimate party. He says, God's going to prepare for you the ultimate party because he loves you. He goes on and says, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Does that ring a bell? That's quoted later in Revelation. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken, and that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So Isaiah 25 talks about this death shroud that's swallowed up. Um, It's like the covering that they would put on a dead body. I found a picture, did a little Googling, and apparently uh, in the Netherlands, people still use ancient death shrouds. It's actually an activity that one funeral director was recommending that you make your own death shroud. This is a tradition, apparently, uh, of the Dutch. They would actually make their own death shroud and like keep it in a cabinet so it was just ready to go, right? Just remembering, hey, you're going to die, okay? Keeping, keeping that close and forefront in your mind. The answer here is, well, yeah, it's good, it's good to know that you're going to die, but, but Jesus is going to swallow up death forever. He's going to take it away. That horrible death shroud, the way Isaiah says it, is on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. He's going to take away coffins. Maybe that's the way to say it in our language. There will be no more funeral parlors with our God. It will all be finished. We will live on forever. This comforts us that have lost loved ones. That encourages us. Man, we, have, we look forward to no more loss like this someday. It comforts us for our own self. Like I don't have to be so afraid of death. Um, I think it's one of the most common human fears, right? We just have this instinct to stay alive. I think that's right and good. But we see this radical transformation of the Christian community in the first century where they were willing to die for Jesus. There was just some, there was like an extra kind of crazy we saw in the first Christians because they believed this. What if we believed this? How much more generous would we be if we actually believed that Jesus overcomes death? How much more free would we be with our life if we actually believed that Jesus is the one that wins over death? He has defeated our most fundamental fear. We don't have to be afraid any longer. Uh, This comes up a lot in literature with the whole zombie theme, right? The zombie theme, it's kind of fading, I think, now, but it's been in movies and TV and literature. It's this idea of, of kind of death creeping in and us fighting for survival of the human race, right? And that can be symbolic of the reality that we can live in one of two ways. We can live as people of life or we can live as people of death. The more we turn from God, we're people of death. We bring death upon ourselves like our parents, Adam and Eve, who said, we don't want God, we just want his stuff. And they entered into death and the whole world has entered into death. Or we can trust Jesus and say, he's defeating death. He's won over death. His death and resurrection defeated death, just as we sang in some of our songs today. That's, that's our hope. And that changes us. We begin to live differently. Keep fighting. Keep going. Live as, as people of life. So because Jesus wins over death, 
We should be people of life. We should also, in our day-to-day life, continue to fight against it. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, there's four things. There's multiple things that that Paul has said, but four things that kind of keep coming up in the letter. If you go back and read the letter, Paul says at the end of 15, he's like, keep going, be steadfast, be immovable, right? And here's what he's referring to, right? Because he's been saying, these are all the things you should be doing to show that you actually believe in Jesus. He talks about humility. That's a really important part of, I believe Jesus has conquered death, so that, that actually makes me humble. I am not conquering death on my own, it's Jesus. I'm relying on Jesus. I'm walking by faith in Jesus. And so I have a humility about me because of that. If we really believe that Jesus has defeated death, then we don't think we're that awesome anymore. We think he's awesome, right? And we continue to point to him instead of pointing to ourselves. We're less likely to say, hey, do everything I do. I'm perfect. No, we're like, no, look, look at Jesus. Follow him. The second thing that comes up again and again is sexual purity. And I think the flip side of this is if, if we don't believe Jesus has conquered sin and death, then we believe our job is just to enjoy as much life as we can now, just to indulge as much and as quickly as we can. But if we believe that Jesus has conquered death, he's won over death, then that gives us a freedom to live for him, to obey his ethics, his moral parameters, to practice sexual purity, which is different and alien to our culture. If you follow the ethics of Jesus, your culture will, will think you're crazy. And we are. We think Jesus has won. We're like, yeah, Jesus is my hope, not pleasure. Like, pleasure's not my only hope. I mean, pleasure's great. We can enjoy it. There's plenty of pleasure Jesus gives us to enjoy in this world, but, but that's not my ultimate hope. The third thing that Paul's talked about a lot is generosity. He saw the Corinthians being greedy. And he's like, now be, be generous, right? Share with each other. Be generous. The more that we think Jesus defeated death, we're going to be generous. And then finally, hospitality, which is kind of a variety of, of generosity, I think. Just kind of welcoming outsiders. Not thinking you have the exclusive rights and you're the good guys and they're the bad guys, but always welcoming other people, loving other people, getting to know other people because Jesus has defeated death. We don't have to live so afraid anymore. So Jesus wins over death. Don't give up. The final point is that Jesus wins over sin. Jesus wins over sin, so don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, he says it this way. The sting of death is sin. That's, that's the stinger. That's what really gets you. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So sin and death and law are all connected. Long logical chain we see worked out in the book of Romans really well. It's this idea that God has said by his law, do this. This is what it means to be human. Obey me, honor me with your life. And we are to obey the law. But none of us have done that. All of us have failed to keep the law. None of us have lived for God the way that he's told us to live for him, the way that he's designed us to. And so that's brought death into our lives. That reality of not obeying the law we call sin, and the result of sin is death. He's connecting all these things together. And where does the victory come from? Where does the overcoming come from? It says through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians is one of the best um, cross-references for this. In Colossians, it's very clear that the certificate of debt that we owe has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. 
I was thinking about this. Years ago, we paid off this building. We paid off the mortgage for it, and it was a big celebration at one of our annual members' meetings. We burned the note. You know, any of y'all ever seen that? Someone will burn the, the note to a mortgage, maybe for a private debt or a public debt. I grabbed a picture here of, of a mortgage on fire. I think we actually have video of me burning our mortgage and, you know, like almost burning the carpet in the back building down. But I couldn't find that. I was looking for it, couldn't find it. But anyway, that's an example for you. The idea is that the debt that we owe under the legal requirements of the law, the debt that we owe, sin, death, that's been burned up by Jesus. It's been settled. He's paid off the account. One of the beautiful things about the way this works is described in what's called double imputation, which is a big word for not only has Jesus paid our debt down, right? Like we owe a billion dollars. We owe a universe of money, right? This debt because of our sin, because of cosmic treason against the God of the universe. We owe a debt we can't pay. He's paid it. He took our place. He, his life was sacrificed. He was payment for us. Not only that, though, he rose from the dead, and so we are given his eternal life, is the way it's described in John. His resurrection life is imputed to you, is given to you. So not only is the debt paid off, but he's now filled our bank accounts. Not only are we at ground zero and we don't owe him anything anymore, like he's given us everything. We share in the inheritance of Jesus, the king of the universe. He's given us everything. He shares everything with us. And so we call that double imputation. It's really just the idea that not only has he forgiven you, but he likes you. God likes you in Jesus. He's pleased with you. A lot of us walk around like, yeah, I know he's forgiven my sin, but he's just kind of putting up with me. No, he delights in you in Jesus. He's given you everything. He looks at you through the, the oneness with his son, Jesus Christ. God delights in you. How can, we, how can we remember this so that we can not give up, right? Because in the next section, he says, so then keep going. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the, the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So what does this mean? It means the things that we do by faith in Jesus matter. Doing your job to the glory of God because you love God and love people has eternal consequences. Sharing the truth of the gospel with someone because you love God and trust him and see him as your only hope, that has eternal consequences. Loving people well, serving people well, this has eternal consequences. He says, don't give up. Keep doing these things. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We do these things because we know that Jesus has defeated sin and death once and for all. How can you know this? We look back at the cross. We look back at the gospel. We recite the story. The gospel is not something you just uh, learn once and Jesus has forgiven you. Now you're a Christian and then you move on to more advanced things. The gospel is the most advanced thing in our life. It's our only hope. It's how we keep going. It's how we can be steadfast and immovable. It's how we can abound in the work of the Lord. Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you. That's your hope and that's my hope. Jesus has won even over our sin, so don't give up. If you struggle to believe this, I'd encourage you to memorize some scriptures, memorize key verses that remind you of this. We talk a lot about the Roman road. It's like a simple set of four verses that recite the truths of the gospel that we're sinners. He's not. He died for us. He loves us. If we trust in him, we can be forgiven. Our 
our mortgage, so to speak, can be burned up by Jesus because he has given himself for us. So the Roman road is Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9. I encourage you to memorize these verses. I'll say them again if you want to write them down. Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9. You can just Google Roman road. These are verses from the book of Romans. There are also books out there that can help you. Um, A lot of books we've studied in small groups. One's called The Gospel-Centered Life. It's helpful just helping you kind of deepen an understanding. Jesus has forgiven you. Um, There's a catechism uh, that our kids use a lot here called the New City Catechism. Just helping you memorize questions and answers about the gospel. And there are verses that go along with it. There's a lot of free apps you can get for the New City Catechism. Catechism is just simply a way of uh, teaching. Um, And so it's this idea that churches have done traditionally where they're just questions and answers like who is God and what is the gospel and how are you saved and that kind of thing. And so there are questions and answers in a catechism, new city catechism. It's a book a lot of us have enjoyed called The Cure that helps you distinguish between am I thinking I can impress God with my behavior or am I thinking he actually loves me in Jesus. The Cure sets up through kind of a dream sequence, these two paths we can walk on. And then finally, for those of you that are uh, more advanced students, if you've read all this, you're like, Dave, I've read all that. I'm still struggling. Here's a really good one that I love. It's called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Um, Great theologian of the previous generation, just passed away a few years ago. Uh, John Stott's called The Cross of Christ. It's a thicker one, a little more hefty theological book. But these are ones that remind us that Jesus has indeed defeated our sin. We always need to be reminding each other of that so that we can be steadfast and immovable, and and continue to abound in the work of the Lord. So Jesus wins. We'll wrap up here. Um, Think in your own life of maybe a game you played where there was this decisive turning point in the game, and you knew, okay, we're going to win this. Maybe you could think in relational terms. Maybe that moment you knew your spouse was the one, right? Or maybe it was that moment you had a school teacher, and you were like, This teacher actually cares about me. This teacher actually believes in me. It's like a turning point in your life. Can you think of these turning points in your life where you're like, I I think it's going to be okay. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the hope we have in the resurrection is it's it's not just a, a war turning point, right? The defeat of sin and death, but it's also a relational turning point. Zephaniah 3 is what we've been opening our services with over the last few weeks, and it's one of my favorite verses. Zephaniah 3.17 reminds us that God is this mighty warrior who can save, and he's also this tender father that takes great delight in you. When we see that, when the Holy Spirit gives you supernatural faith that this is who God is and this is who you are, That's the decisive turning point. That's what enables you to to say, yeah, Jesus has won. He's my only hope. I'll keep going. I won't give up. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome. He has defeated it all. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have saved us. You came after us in Jesus. When we're unsure, help us to look back at what you've done at who Jesus is, how he lived for us, how he died for us, how he rose from the dead. Help us to trust in you, Lord, that you would be glorified, that people would look at us and say, God is good. God is gracious as we see that you can be trusted. I pray that you would change us in Jesus' name. Amen.